Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. My perspective on sales is like it's uh, part science, part art. And in becoming increasingly sciencey, actually, as there's more and more process and data, you know, it's more of a more of a science, which is why I think there's more introverts and more kind of non-stereotypical salespeople around these days who are much more focused on the critical path analysis and, you know, how do I get the, the best outcome here rather than having, I guess, what I would describe as sales flair. I honestly can't stress enough how important diversity, inclusion and empowering new voices is within any organisation. That's why I'm proud to tell you about this new opportunity with a company I'm grateful to work with. Hire4 is a network that provides full lifecycle talent search and recruiting services customised to fit your needs. Whether you want growth, innovation, change or diversity, Hire4's team of recruiting experts will match you with the best candidates and fast. From sales to marketing, human resources and more, tell Hirefall what you're looking for, then sit back, relax, and wait to connect to top-class talent. Send an email to team at hirefall.co, that's team at h-i-r-e-f-o-r.co to get started. That's team at hirefall.co, and don't forget to tell them that I sent you. Welcome to the On Target podcast. We're kicking off season two with a very, very special guest, Matt Hicks. Matt's a London-based VP of global sales at Vertis, the purchasing platform that helps clients to manage their SaaS stack. Matt's a self-professed fintech nerd, but he's also a storied sales leader, and I'll be talking to him about shaping culture and creating high-performing teams, along with unpacking how he thinks about team structures, incentives, and a whole lot more. Matt, it's great to have you this morning. How are you? Very well, thank you, Alex. Uh, privileged to be on the podcast, so thanks for having me on. Absolutely. Well, it's great to meet you. Now, salespeople need an elevator pitch, Matt, and you pitch your company day in and day out. So if you had an elevator pitch for yourself in 30 seconds or less, how would you introduce yourself? I'm Matt Hicks. I'm 37 years old. Uh, I live in Richmond in southwest London. And I've been working in sales for my entire career, which is 15 years now, both in financial services and in software. My journey in sales has been a wild ride. I've gone from being fired from my very first job in sales in 2008 to being a high-performing individual contributor. And then the last six years, I've been a sales leader in in various roles. So um it's not been uh, the perfect uh, journey by any means, and it's been one of growth and development and definitely not one that's finished. So, um, yeah, that's me. Well, we, we've got to unpack that story in a bit more detail, Matt. We've heard getting fired and then turning that around into being a, a global VP of sales. So just talk to us a bit more about your, your story in some more detail. I'd love to hear some of the bigger lessons, some of the bigger learnings that have gotten you to where you are today. From the beginning, like growing up, I was always quite a quiet person. I wouldn't say introverted necessarily, but but definitely quiet, verging on a little shy growing up. Um, I was very good at uh, subjects like maths. I was very good with computers. And I remember very vividly the day I told my dad I was taking my first job in sales. Him being a little sheepish and 
questioning whether that was going to be a good fit for my personality uh, type. He said, you know, you've, you've got a very analytical mind and, you know, maybe sales is not the right place for you. And, and looking back on that moment, I, you know, I just think my father was probably trying to protect me from um, what was, I think sales was a very different place in 2008. Um, I remember it being brutal. When I first started, it was a uh, $100 a day type situation. I think my territory was companies beginning with A and B in Scandinavia. So the the territory <laughs> territory management was uh, done on a you know, letters of the alphabet, which, you know, seems archaic uh, thinking about it now. And that was kind of a brutal baptism of fire working for a company called uh, Data Monitor in a, in a very, very high energy sales floor. And I was let go from that role after seven months uh, for underperformance. And uh, that was when I was driven to uh, turn things around. And one of the things that I really care about is understanding how things how things work and how you can improve them so I look back on some of the the early sales jobs in my career and I you know I remember thinking like this can't be the best way of approaching this this can't be the best way of trying to establish value and establish fits with customers and I guess that was the the start of the journey um I then took various roles uh, selling in the fields for a financial services company in Kai Wharf called Ula Hermes so that was a uh, you know out out in the car going out and visiting uh clients on site which was a super interesting journey for me because you know you never knew who you were going to meet we had a telesales team up in Manchester and they would book appointments into my diary and I would I would sort of just drive and 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 sort of turn up to those appointments uh which were you know of varying quality and then i sort of decided that you know big corporates wasn't for me and i wanted to go and work in a startup environment where i could have a greater impact on what i was doing and, and maybe play a more pivotal role in building out some of the processes from the ground up and making sure that you know the one commodity that we control as salespeople, which is how we spend our time was maximized, you know, ma maximizing every day and every moment of every day to get the best possible outcomes for customers is really what I'm, uh, what I'm focused on. The big breakthrough I got, and I think every, everybody needs a, a breakthrough moment in their career in, in sales. And a lot of it is in your control, but I think a lot of it depends on the, the company that you're, that you're working for was at a company called Kodak. And I, I joined very early at Kodak. I was part of the founding team. I was the first go-to-market hire. And uh, over a five-year period, we scaled that business from from zero uh, revenue up to, you know, there was about 300 people when I left and we'd raised 100 million from, from JP Morgan and, um, you know, had sort of tripled the business from a revenue perspective year over year. So that was quite the... Um, quite the journey. And I guess um, I moved from from Kodak to, to Vertice because I think once you've had one breakthrough success and you've scaled one business, then it's always like, well, can can you do it again? And that's kind of the, the I wanted to throw myself into a new challenge to prove to myself as much as any, anyone that um, I could take another business from zero to, um, to sort of scaling up. Incredible. I mean, Matt, in, in 37 years, I feel like you've seen a lot of movies that you've been able to pick yourself up off the deck, find a way forward. And I mean, to scale a company of that 
size and scale from from zero dollars in revenue is something pretty special. It feeds nicely and segues nicely into the topic of really talent, really, and talent development, and also some of the principles of building, sustaining, scaling a best-in-class sales team. So I'd love to just learn a bit more about how you think about that from a principle standpoint. What are some of the core things that really underpinned your your success in building teams? I remember when I, I took the top top job uh, for the first time, my, my CEO sat me down and he said, but Matt, I, you know, you're very good at some things, but there's some things this job requires, which you haven't done that much. Uh, and therefore you're going to need to practice and build a process. And through repetition, you're going to get good at it. Uh, and the, one of the key things he said is like, you know, we're planning to scale this team up significantly uh, this year. And hiring is going to be a key part of what makes us successful in the future. And of course, with hiring, it's it's always lagging, right? Because you make the hiring decision and then, you know, you've got to ramp the reps and you've got to get them into a position where they can be successful. And so it's it's difficult because if you make the wrong decisions, you, you know, you, you have to look back at yourself six, nine or 12 months ago to, to kind of question, you know, why you were making those decisions. So it's, it's a tricky one and you've got to play the played a long game, but I think with hiring, you know, like many other disciplines within sales, it's all about building a process and making sure, you know, in prospecting, you have an ICP when you're hiring, you need to have a rep profile that works for you. And when I say profile, I'm not talking about what people look like or where they're from. I'm talking about like, what stage of their career are they at? What's the OTE that's achievable for those individuals? Um, you know, are they from the market? Are they not from the market? Do they prospect themselves? Do they not? So understanding that rep profile based on your company's circumstances is like extremely important. And then having a discipline in the process, making sure you're you're giving everybody an equitable chance to show what they can do and show their competency throughout that process is very important as well. I still don't get hiring decisions 100% right, but I, I aim for 80%. And um, yeah, I think having rigor in that hiring process is like extremely, extremely important. I try to make it as much about the rep I'm interviewing, interviewing me as it is the other way around, right? Because we, you know, it's a process of two people managing one another's expectations. Because if you're not doing that effectively, then you're just going to set yourself up for failure, whether you're the rep or you're you're me, right? If I'm like not being honest and telling people about the situation we're in today and where we're trying to get to, then the rep's going to find out very quickly that, that that's not the case. And actually there is no leads from marketing or whatever the case may be. So yeah, I think, you know, you just got to be super honest um, and make sure that you believe in what you're saying because if you don't then it's going to be difficult for you to hire great people because they won't believe you believe you either right so absolutely i I completely agree that that it's also two-way right both people have got to feel great and excited and enthused by the opportunity and so leading with that transparency being clear about what the role is today what it could lead into is incredibly important the last thing you want is someone to turn up on a monday feeling primed to take on a role and then have a very different expectation once they see the reality. It doesn't serve either side ultimately. Exactly. I'd love to um, just uh, double tap. You mentioned prospecting, Matt, and I'm sure we can both attest to the importance of 
generating pipeline being really the lifeblood of the role, whether you're a seller, whether you're a leader or, or beyond. So could you just talk to us about how you go about building and fostering a culture that really is based around the importance of pipeline generation? That is one thing that I know that I'm I'm very good at is, is fostering a culture which is focused on generating pipe every, every day. Um, and I'll, I'll start by just bringing to the attention of the audience like a peculiarity about sales teams, uh, in my opinion. And that's that we we have this role BDR or SDR, but an entry-level role in sales. And we expect that entry-level individual to be the, I don't know, in some cases, the main contributor of our, our top of funnel activity. Now, if you, if you think about that, that's kind of weird because those are the people who, you know, they don't really have a network or they've got a very immature network. So a lot of their outreach is going to be ice cold. Um, and and that, that, that's fine to some extent. And then you have, you know, maybe sales leaders like myself who, who maybe aren't doing that much prospecting at all. By the way, I still find time to prospect every week, every day if I can, because I've got an extensive network. And frankly, it's easier for me with my fancy job title than it is for my BDRs, right? So um so it's, it's hugely important to us. I'm working for a company now where our CEO is, is one of our most prolific prospectors, um, which is great because uh, he, he clearly is a you know very experienced entrepreneur and he understands like why it's so important. So it's not a, a job that's reserved for the, the folks at the lowest level of the hierarchy. It's something that really drives the business forwards. And it's hard. Prospecting is hard, Pete. You, you can't just pitch up having not done it for a while and be good at it. It's something that you need to repeat and you get good at it and you gather evidence. And, you know, lots of uh, the folks these days, they're very data led and they, you know, they want to comb through the data and understand what, what works, what, what doesn't work. And, and that, that's great. But you, you've got to be flexing those, those muscles every day if you can. And that's how you get really good at prospecting. So that, that's how I, th I think about it. How do I ensure that, you know, that culture is adopted widely within the team? I think it's like quite, you know, it's relatively straightforward these days because you can create feedback loops using the tooling that we all have available to us within a modern company. So we, um, you know, people talk about celebrating the small wins and, and that's, that's fine if you're always um, in the same room together, but often, often we are, you know, we have distributed teams and the US and in Australia. Um, so we, we use Slack internally and uh, every time a prospect passes through a, a key moment in the cycle, uh, a Slack notification will, will ping to say that an SQL has been achieved and, and, you know, that the, the team can celebrate those wins together. And then, you know, uh, the BDR can, can explain exactly how they got that lead. What was the messaging that worked for them? And, that means that you know they're not just learning in a silo. They're they're learning in a in a, in a team, and um, everyone can benefit from from what's worked worked well for them. So, and look, I think we're now you know the sales changes so quickly, and I think the post pandemic era, which we're firmly in now, I think email sequencing is is losing a bit of its effectiveness, and you know we're we're starting to see attribution on in person events and calling going going up. And to the right, and actually, you know, uh, email sequences—they're losing their effectiveness. Because I guess when everybody has got these tools, then it's difficult to cut through the noise, right? So that's my 
my current thinking on prospecting, I still haven't got it worked out. We don't have um, <laughs> we don't have as much pipe as we would like, but um, yeah, it, I think it's the focus, um, the relentless focus on pipe gen that's that's important, and and not it's not something that's reserved for entry level positions. Right, it should be everyone in the sales org has a responsibility for it. Well, Matt, you, you can never have enough pipeline. So I think we can uh, we can all relate to uh, wanting and needing more. There, there was so much to to unlock in that. One of the things that, that stands out to me and what you're talking about is just that daily rigor uh, and the point that, that no one's really above that station. I, I'm actually reading at the moment uh, Frank Slootman's uh, book, Amp It Up. Uh, for anyone who doesn't know, Frank Slootman is the, the CEO of Snowflake, one of the most successful software businesses out there. And one of the principles that he talks a lot about is really prioritizing execution over uh, strategy. And and what you often find is that people spend so much time strategizing and planning and doing the data analysis, certainly with all of the tooling that we have, that they they deprioritize the execution when actually you have someone else who's who's executing daily in the trenches doing the work actually they tend to learn much more and they often have the more effective strategy because they've learned it through doing the reps. So I think a lot of that feeds into uh, what you're talking about here, Matt, and uh, really, really important point. I want to um, take a half pivot actually into talking about the development of the talent. You know, we've spoken a bit about uh, the importance of generating pipeline, how to actually build and curate a world-class team. But when it comes to ongoing development, enablement, you know, we're seeing a lot more tools and platforms that support these types of things. But how do you go about fostering a, a culture and getting the team really bought into the importance of continual development, enablement, and more? Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I really like this topic because it's about supporting the individual on their journey because Obviously, you know they're employed by Vertice or whoever it is at this moment in time. But they're but they're also on their own journey. I've just talked about my career in sales over the last fifteen years, and you know I had several employers, uh, and each each stepping stone of that journey has taught me a different lesson. And it's uh, important to remember that everyone else is on their own journey. So uh, I see enablement in kind of two categories. One of them is like d- data and tooling. So it's harnessing data from the entire team and all of the inputs that the team have and translating that, that data into actionable insights. So I don't know if you're a sci-fi guy at all, Alex, but there's a concept in sci-fi of like a hive mind. And I, I think of uh, sales enablement from that perspective, almost like the hive minds, like their job is to curate the inputs from the team and then make sure that we are learning as a unit, as a hive, so that if there's a a really important learning someone has in a discovery call or in a competitive bake-off, uh, we all benefit from that learning and we're, you know, we're not acting as individual actors. So that's the the first side of it. And then the second side is, I guess it's, it's more cultural. It's about creating a safe space for people. So there's no fear of reprimand if something doesn't go well, right? So that sort of no blame culture and it's sharing the losses as much as we share the wins and uh, doing deep dive retros together as a team where we lose despite it being painful you know i try not to rub salt in the wounds immediately after we've lost a a, a deal but it's important 
that we learn from those uh, losses and those and those failures together. But people won't do that if they feel that it's going to impact their ability to be successful, get promoted, whatever it is, right? Because ultimately, you know, they've got to look after their own interests. But for me, it's about like, if we lose, that's on me as well. You know, it's not just on you. Obviously, we've got to look at the inputs that um, led to, to that outcome. So yeah, that's that's how I think about sales enablement. Fortunately, I have, you know, when we're, when you're early, you've got to do some of this stuff yourself as a leader. But, you know, as you get bigger, you know, I've got people in the in the ops team who who focus on this stuff and that, you know, their job is to is to enable me, but more importantly, probably the, the, the team. And if you create that environment and make learning and development a priority for people, not just within the context of their current employment, but like them as a professional, I think you really get the best out of people because it, it shows that you care about them. You know, they will move on at some point. Um, you know, you're, you're ambitious and your best people, you know, there's always going to be a time when they they look to spread their wings and do something else. And then that's fine. You know, I just want them to to do as much as they can while they're, while they're here. Absolutely. We want to uh, encourage them to fly and uh, make them better in the process. I um, There's some really interesting things in what you just mentioned there. Th- this premise of shared responsibility seems to just be quite thematic in a lot of what you talk about. And I think that's an interesting takeaway for people to consider, right? Winning as a team, losing as a team, learning as a team, uh, growing as a collective, all of these things can be really important when you're trying to build and foster a culture uh, where people feel that they're unified in pursuit towards some form of a goal or some form of a target. I want to shift the conversation now, Matt, into a bit more about the way that you set your own week up for success. So it'd be great if you could peel back the curtains as to really what a typical week looks like for you and any core pillars or principles that have helped you really get ahead when it comes to time management. Yeah, this this is a... it's something that's had to improve um, since I've become a leader because there's never enough time in the day or the week or the month. And I, I'm always sort of up against it from a priorities perspective. But I think it's got to start with building good habits, looking after your your, your mind and your body and like sleep. I just bought an aura ring because I I need to make sure that I'm I'm sleeping well and I'm 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 giving my, my body time to rest. But I think for me, it always always starts with having a good morning routine. You know, I try and hit the gym in the morning, not for long, you know, I, I go for sort of 20, 25 minutes at a time, but go as often as I can, because that sets me, sets me up well for the day. And then, you know, my perspective on sales is like, it's uh, part science, part art. And in becoming increasingly sciencey, actually, as there's more and more process and data, you know, it's more of a more of a science, which is why I think there's more introverts and more kind of non-stereotypical salespeople around these days who are much more focused on the critical path analysis and, you know, how do I get the the best outcome here, rather than having, I guess, what I would describe as sales flair. Um, those people who are really talented at talking or public speaking. So um so yeah, and I, you know, I, I've um, I studied a bit of literature on you know how the re- the reward paths within your brain work, and it, it's pr- you know your brain is obviously very complex, and we you know we don't know exactly how it works. Remarkably, like a lot of it, we still don't know. But there, there's some things around behaviors which we do know quite a lot about. Um, you know, I'm talking about cue habit rewards, basically, and um, you know understanding yourself 
like how long can you concentrate for? Because for me, it's not that long. It's probably 90 minutes and I start to get a little bit, you know, I lose productivity or I need to go do something. So just make sure you understand that about yourself. And for some people, it's longer, some people it's shorter and break your day up into chunks around your concentration span so that, you know, you can really focus, do deep work, do client calls, do whatever you're doing. But then make sure you you do something afterwards. And when I say reward, I, you know, I don't mean a, a coffee or a cigarette or whatever it might be. I mean, like, you know, go take a walk. Or for me, increasingly these days, it's like, go and say thank you to somebody for something great that they did that I noticed and I wanted to, to show my appreciation for them. And um, that's been a really effective uh, thing for me because it makes me feel good going and telling someone that and it breaks up the day and it gives me a chance to go and chat to people in other teams so yeah, that's that's how I think about my day is just just build good habits. Repetition is everything in sales. In terms of tools, I'm like a big Google guy. I seem to be like Google everything these days. I just gave up a long-term relationship with Samsung to move to Pixel. So yeah, I'm kind of everything is managed by my 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 diary. My diary is public, so everyone everyone could see it, but I put everything in it, you know, even even personal stuff so that I know what I'm doing each day and that that's sort of my source of truth in terms of uh, how I organize my uh, my time but I use all of the other Google apps I mean I record a lot of my one-to-ones and calls and those notes are transcribed and then I can search for words afterwards so it's um, the text moved on quite a lot in the last couple of years so um, but yeah unashamedly Google everything these days the tech has really moved on uh, massively I mean it, it sometimes blows my mind uh, some of the things that we're able to do and some of the insights we're able to get. What, what I have found to be really important, though, is you, you've got to have a good level of awareness around really the, the data that actually matters and the things that really move the needle and are impactful. I mean, I've uh, got certain tools that have got a, a trillion and one features, but ultimately there's three or four that I found really make the difference in in my day to day. So I'm all for uh, the way that the market's starting to move and some of the insights we have uh, to be able to make more data-driven decisions. Um, but it's certainly also about finding the uh, the tooling and the specific features that actually make the difference. I think the other thing that I got from what you were talking about is really just having a great personal operating rhythm or system, which is something that I can absolutely relate to. You, you've got to find, again, what works for you. I, I actually used to have an Aura Ring Matt, I uh, I don't know where it is now. I, I I lost it because I found that was kind of in the category for me where I almost started to become a bit obsessive over the data, and it wasn't um, wasn't serving me in the way that I I wanted or needed it to. It's telling me what I already know, to be honest, and I, it's telling me that I actually sleep less than I thought I did. So uh, I don't know if that's I just got it. So maybe it's an end of quarter thing. We'll see next week if it, if it improves or not, but. Yeah, I'd love to uh, part two with you on just how you're getting on with that because, uh, as I said, it didn't last for me. But uh, some of the other principles, meditation, the exercise, uh, absolutely journaling for me, are big parts of the staple. So it's uh, it's great to hear we share some of that at least. Just on the point of, of time, because completely with you that time is the, the biggest threat for any sales leader. It's a thing that we can't, in essence, manufacture more of, right? And it's a thing that we can never get enough of. So uh, for you, what would you say are some of the biggest drains on a sales leader's time? And are there any tactical things that you've been able to do to start to get better control over the diary or to find more time in your week? 
this is something which I've really worked on because I've had to focus on what's important, particularly in the current climate where, you know, it's taking no prisoners uh, because it's just got a lot more difficult to, to get deals done. So when I first became a leader, I was getting pulled into all of these, you know, cross-functional leadership things. And I was like, you know, this is great. I'm kind of, you know, made it into the big leagues, going to meetings with other leaders all the time. And then I quickly realized this. I like, well, what's the purpose of me being here? If the meeting agenda is about something where I can provide feedback or insights from the front lines, from the sales team, then of course, I'm happy to participate there to, to help the company to make good strategic decisions. But if I read the agenda of the meeting and I'm like, I don't have strongly held opinions on any of that. So I'm not coming to that meeting. Uh, and, you know, I'm not being rude. I'm just, you know, I, I don't think I have anything to contribute. You send me the notes afterwards and I'll see if there's anything that I missed and nothing happened. And, you know, I didn't get, nobody thought worse of me. And, you know, I, I, I saved, you know, several hours a week just, just doing that. So that was one thing, just because it's a, a meeting with people who are your peers in inverted commas, uh, doesn't mean it's, it's more important than doing stuff with clients or with your own team. Uh, the second one is spending too much time with, I don't want to say underperformers, but people who are not rowing the boat as hard as I am. So if I'm rowing the boat at the front of the boat and I turn around and I see someone who's not rowing as hard as I am, I think the temptation is to invest a disproportionate amount of time trying to get that person rowing. Either the person is going to row hard or they're not going to row hard, right? And I think, you know, I don't want to make this about underperformance because that, that wasn't your your question, but I think it's like, you know, set expectations. I don't tell people what to do. I think it's, you know, in 2023, I'm, you know, I, I've adopted a servant leadership methodology. I'm not an autocratic sort of leader. I set expectations and then I, you know, I, I make observations and I gather the evidence about whether I think that person is is giving it their all or, or not. And and if they're not, you know, I I, I move to the next uh, steps. And that that's, it's pretty simple for, for me. So I, I've, I've stopped spending too much time on pushing boulders uphill basically that, that that's never going to work out so those are probably the two things which have shaved off um the most time for me i love both uh, just on that piece with the uh, performance it's, it's a, a fascinating topic that certainly needs more time in the sense that you know i often have this principle that you want to help your uh, your top performers go further and faster and to your point what i i see all too often is uh a great word, right? Disproportionate amount of time being invested, trying to drag people over the finish line when actually you've got some people that that want to run run through the tape. And our role is to really help those people, again, do that more efficiently and more effectively and not spend an overexerted amount of time trying to drag people over a finish line that they're not particularly keen on, on doing. I'd love to get your thoughts on this uh, principle that Elon Musk has. I, I I study Elon Musk quite a lot. I just find him a, a really just interesting, fascinating person and uh, controversial, but certainly he's done something right in his life. And one of his principles is that if he joins a meeting, he encourages that if anyone at any point just feels that they can no longer be helpful to the purpose of the meeting or actually they cannot make a meaningful contribution that they should just get up and walk out and he also manages his diary in five minute increments so I'd, I'd love to just get your thoughts on uh, on that because I guess that's probably quite controversial in its own right 
I think managing my diary in five minute increments would be way too stressful for me. Like I already find like the half hour thing, like quite a lot. And also I think if you're going to do something like I'm, I get a short tension span and I get distracted, but I'm trying to practice being present and, you know, dedicating myself to my counterparty, you know, whether that's a client or a colleague and actually, yeah, you get far better outcomes from meetings if you, if you do that. So yeah, I think, you know, Elon's probably right. I think, you know, one of the things about the pandemic was because we were all remote, everyone was checking in on everyone all the time. And it's just like a bit unnecessary. I think particularly in a high performance sales team, it's like just set out the stall and like make the culture a high performing culture. And, you know, I, I tried to steal a lot of insight from high performing sports teams, whether they're, you know, football teams or cycling teams and uh, you know, a lot of it is is very translatable into into sales. Uh, some of the best reps I've worked with have been ex athletes, and um, yeah, I just try to to keep things quite simple, uh, but also like you know respect that other people might not operate like that, and just make sure that you're communicating with them that I'm not ditching this meeting because I did, I'm not being rude or I don't like you or whatever. It's like I've, I've really got to prioritize other stuff um, and um, let me know if I can help going forwards. Because I think there's, you know, I think particularly in in the UK where we are very polite and we don't want to rock the boat and upset people. And that less, I think broadly that's a very positive thing. But I think sometimes in, in business where it's things, time's short, you've just got to be firm about not not wasting wasting time basically. So yeah. I don't know. How, how's Elon? I know Elon has made some pretty drastic moves at Twitter. I don't know. Can you update me on how that's going? Is Twitter still alive? Or Well, it, it seems like they're burning a lot less money than they, they ever uh, than they were before. Put it that way. I think they were a bit of a, a sinking ship as it relates to that. And uh, wrongly or rightly, he's, he's tried to right-size things. And um, look, he's made some big decisions, but he's also clearly proven to have a lot of success in some of these principles that we're talking about uh, what have underpinned that so uh, one to continue to explore I guess for both of us I'd love to shift gears now just to talk a bit more about uh, really closing deals winning business right and I'd love to get your thoughts on any core principles that you really believe all sales leaders and sellers alike should really adhere to when it comes to winning business and why do you have those principles our job as B2B salespeople, at least, is to like establish a fit and ultimately to, to kick off the journey of our company, providing your company with value. And when you reframe things in that context, it stops becoming about selling and it starts becoming about being almost like an investigator or like somebody who can, who can really understand uh, their, their client and how their business functions and, and so, you know, a, pro a problem solver, really. And somebody who understands that the outcome is around solving the problem. So people talk a lot about mutual success plans and controlling the timeline. You know, one of the things that I try to do with, within my team is like focus on the value or at least the start of the value journey. So for us, it's like a compelling event at Matisse is always a compelling event. It might be a big renewal for one of their tools that's coming up and we build the entire process and the entire business case is around that so that there's an event and there's a line and a sound that we can work backwards from 
to getting value for the customer. And it might be a big saving or it might be um, something that they get and they can, I guess, be celebrating internally on, on their team. And and that's what I try to I try to do. It's like it shouldn't be us celebrating the signature. It should be them celebrating the fact that they did the thing that we said that we were going to do for them. And if you just, it's just very subtle, right? Because the two things are obviously very closely related and one uh, is a precursor to the other, but it's just slightly reframing how you're thinking about it. And it's, you know, it's all about empathy and making sure that you're, you're doing right by the customer. And then in terms of closing, I'll share a, I'll share a story on uh, a deal we closed recently. So we're, we're in a hyper competitive market. Most uh, high-performing teams are right. I wouldn't if it, if it was if if something's worth doing. There's going to be competitors who, who come in. So we're we're often in competitor kind of bake-offs, and we had a competitor bake-off recently, and it was business that we had originated. Actually, I, I had originated it, and we were at the final final stage. And we know that our competitor had come in and probably undercut us. That was our gut feeling. The the CFO we were dealing with was kind of a little bit guarded, playing his cards close to the chest. But our sense was that we were going undercut because these guys had come in late to the process. And, um, you know, he said, I remember it very vividly, I wouldn't be doing my job very well as a CFO if I didn't look at the market. And of course, as part of our process, um, you know, we talk about that a lot, right? Competitive pressure is one of the mechanisms you can use to, to achieve uh, the best possible terms. So we said to the customer okay we understand that's completely completely fine and we then completely we said you know let's park the terms we want to make sure that you are working with the preferred partner who you think is going to drive the the best outcomes for you so again it's about focusing on the outcome bringing it away from the terms and bringing it away from us against them to like the outcome and like who's gonna who do you think is going to do the best job for you on achieving that and that worked extremely well for us. Obviously, we said to them that we want to be competitive. You know, just tell us where we where we need to be, and we'll you know we'll do our best to to, to try and put put table something that's competitive. We ended up signing the deal at a premium to our competitor with terms that work for both parties. And I think you know that was kind of one from this quarter, which I was like, you know, stay calm in those competitive scenarios and just focus on the thing that you know the the reason why the guy took the call in the first place, right? So. It's a great story. We talk so much about value selling. And I think in a way, in this era, the words start to become undercooked or underappreciated because we just hear it all the time, right? Sell on value, sell on value. But it is just so incredibly important. You know, we're in the business of solving large scale problems and, and driving transformative value. And when you really understand those two things and you, you get your head out the trees in terms of focusing on features, functions, and a transactional way of looking at a deal, it really does make the difference. And, and I still think that holistically sellers have such a long way to go, right, to really start to shift that mindset. And in an ever, ever increasing con competitive landscape uh, for a large proportion of businesses, certainly with the economic downturn and more, we've all got to raise the bar, right? We've all got to start to get really clear and comfortable about what it takes to be a great seller and being able to sell on value and being in scenarios where actually you're winning business when you cost more than your competitor is great validation of, of, of doing a tremendous job in terms of helping a customer to understand value. So congratulations to you and the team on that. Last couple of things from me, Matt, just on, on this continual topic of really deals and sales excellent are there, are there really any 
key mistakes or key things that you would call out that you often see sellers making out there in the field uh, that they should really spend more time on or focus on any repeated patterns you would say that you've seen over the years? Well, yeah, I mean, they're still still making new mistakes and I feel like it's, you know, the current environment. Even when you followed absolutely the playbook down to a T, things still go wrong, right? I think the classic one for me, and it's probably one that you're familiar with and maybe your audience is as well, but it's um, it's a pretty simple one and it separates average salespeople, of which there are many, from exceptional salespeople, of which there are very few. And it's really focusing on controllable inputs and non-controllable inputs. Because I think like average salespeople can build a good pipe, you know, they might have eight or nine deals and then they kind of sit on it and they're like just talking about the same deals and the same pipeline the whole time, rather than being like, hey, I've done everything I can on that deal. I've hit the, the, the you know, imagine it's a tennis court, I've hit the ball back into their court and I'm just waiting on legal or whoever, whatever's going on with them, which I, I can't influence that anymore. I've done everything I can. So I should just go focus on my habits and my pipe, you know, building my pipe for, for the next quarter. Very challenging thing to do. It's just not in our nature. You've kind of got to like wire yourself to do it differently because all you want to do is kind of talk about the the things that you have coming. And I'm a glass half full guy. So no. I'm like, you know, these deals are coming, these deals are coming. That's quite funny. My team take the mick out of me for that. But um, but the um, the exceptional people, they'll just be like, right, no, done everything I done everything I can there. And now it's up to my my guys to come back and say yes, no, maybe whatever they want to say. So that's the piece of advice I would give people. Is that really? And it, that's something that they control. They have input. You know, you know, people talk a lot about like multi-threading and this sort of thing. And I think it's very difficult sometimes. You know, it's like you're not going to get hold of the CFO, man. Like. <laughs> These guys are like extremely busy and they don't want to talk to you with all due respect. So I think some of the advice out there, it's not it's not practically applicable for a lot of reps. Whereas I think this one is because it's like, it comes from within. It's like, how do you manage your time? How do you think about things? Um, you know, don't obsess over the deal that you know is going to happen. Go and find three more. Who are their competitors, right? That's always the easy one for me. It's like, you know, you've got this deal, you know it inside out, you know all of the stakeholders, you know the market, because, you know, in order to to really persuade the customer you're the right vendor, you need to, to know them well. Well, you know, go speak to companies who look a little bit like them, right, rather than wasting time waiting for them to get back to you. So hopefully it's practical advice for, for people. Yeah, thank you for, for sharing that one. I, I think some of this stuff is uh, stylistic as well to a degree. I mean, I'm certainly a sales leader that does get pretty bullish about multi-threading and, and finding a way into to other stakeholders. And I think ultimately you've got to look at the deal. You've got to look at what it is that you're selling and you're offering. Uh, you've got to look at the temperament of the the seller and your team and then take some active decisions on, or is there an opportunity to get higher and wider? If so, let's absolutely go for it. But equally, if that's not going to serve where we are in the cycle and, and where we are right now. Let's not just do things to do them because it's just the thing to do. So definitely one that we could unpack further. Now, before we wrap, Matt, I have one final question for you, which is really what is the single best piece of advice that you'd have to any sales leader that's listening right now to help them to up-level in their career? Pick your leadership style. You know, that was something which I 
you know, struggled with early on. I was like, oh, do I got to be, have I got to be like this? Have I got to be like this? Have I got to be all, you know, have I got to be authoritative? And it's, you've got to work out what works for you and your personality. Because if you try to force a leadership style onto yourself, which doesn't suit your personality type, it's going to come across awkward. You're going to feel crap about yourself. So I like did a load of research on it and I spoke to some role models and they passed this advice on to me and the leadership style I landed on was servant leadership because it's kind of the, the thing that suited my personality the best. It's not going to be for everybody, but, um, yeah, I think, you know, do your research, obviously, you know, what, what you're like, and then pick a style that's going to, going to suit you. Wonderful. What a way to wrap up. How did you find being on, Matt? Did you enjoy yourself? Yeah, no, it's been it's been awesome. It's always good to to chat to fellow sales leaders about topics which you know we all struggle with day to day, and it's um, you know it's, it's always motivating to hear that you're not the only one. And um, yeah, no, I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. So thanks for for having me on. It was great to have you on. Thank you so much for taking the time to share your wisdom and insights with the masses. Uh, Thank you to everyone listening. Great to know that you stayed tuned through the entire episode. Please take a moment to like, comment, share and subscribe, depending on where you're listening to this. And if you're listening on any of the podcasting platforms, really appreciate you taking some time to leave us a five star review. On that note, we'll wrap up and we'll see you on the next one. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.